thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Now I ask you to join me in the book of Galatians. We've been in the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter so far, just more recently in the book of Philippians, and now we're finally landing in Galatians. If you're not familiar with our teaching of the book of Galatians, we pray this will be a good introduction to it for you. The book of Galatians is written to combat a heresy that is a false teaching that grew up very quickly in the churches of Galatia. That was a region that covered a wide range of territory, but there were churches which Paul was used by God along with his companions to plant churches there. And no sooner had Paul left than there was a surge of false teaching. And the false teaching was led by people whom we have been introduced by Paul in the book of Galatians as Judaizers, which means they were people who professed faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, but they added to what it would take to be a person who came to really know Jesus as she or he should. Well, what happened was, Paul was quite irritated, not because they had taken exception with what he had said, but more importantly, they had taken exception to what God had said about what constitutes the way to the Lord. They had added to the work of Christ and the addition that they had made was saying that males who claimed to be Christ followers were to be people who had to be circumcised in order to go up to the highest level. Created some problems. Let's look at Galatians 2, verse 19 through 21. Last three verses of the second chapter. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow along with me. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Have you ever said something like this to God? God, I'm really serious this time, meaning serious about turning over a new leaf and following the Lord. Has anybody ever said that? Only to fail to be consistent in that promise? Well, if you have, you're, I wouldn't say with good company, but a bunch of company in here today. And maybe you even added to that statement, Lord, I'm really serious. You may have said this time, suggesting there had been several times along the way, I'll do it 
if it kills me. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us instruction about how to be consistent in our walk with God and really to be fruitful in our relationship to God. We read from John chapter 15 to begin our worship service today. And I'm just going to mention a couple of verses that are found there. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice what Jesus says. He compares himself, obviously, to a grapevine. And he compares those who follow him to branches. And he says, if we abide in him, this is the clincher. Listen carefully. If we live in an abiding relationship, to simplify that for us, to get it in our minds, what it means to abide means to depend completely upon the Lord. If you abide in me, he says, you will bear much fruit. And that brings glory to God. We saw in that section of Scripture. And then he says this remarkable thing, which underscores where we began in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. Do you think He meant it? And if He meant it, does He have expectations for you and me as we seek to follow the Lord? Why, of course. And you'll be surprised before we finish today what that looks like. But what God wants us to be obviously is committed to Jesus and therefore committed to God the Father and the Holy Spirit, each member of the Godhead. But what we understand is God wants us to be men and women who are successful and are men and women who follow Jesus with consistency. And we're going to learn it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dig right into this passage of Scripture. We have to identify with Jesus Christ in two areas. We have to identify Him in His death. We have to identify with Him also in His life. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, He was ascended into heaven. This text doesn't really talk about that. So we'll leave that for another sermon. I'm glad, I know you're glad that we're going to shorten the sermon a little bit today. Look at verse 19 again. For through the law, this would be the Ten Commandments, and all the associated commandments that grew out of the Ten Commandments, through the law, I died to the law. What's he saying? There was a funeral of sorts in Paul's life. He undoubtedly had in his mind the moment when he, with orders to arrest any person who was a descendant of Abraham and take that person back to Jerusalem to face trial for abandoning the faith of Abraham and all his descendants, the Jewish nation. And so, he was there. And what happened? He had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was never the same. Three days of blindness. The blindness was removed. 
not simply from his eyes, but more importantly from his heart. Because his heart, as he describes it in the book of Ephesians, all unbelievers' hearts are darkened by their unbelief. It's as if they have blinders on. They can hear the gospel that Christ died for their sins, was buried and raised again, and it not even register. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And what we need to understand is Christ takes the blinders off of our hearts and our minds as He did Paul. Maybe and probably not in as dramatic a form, but nevertheless, we have to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened in order that we can know the one about whom the gospel teaches. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Paul's case, prior to coming to know Jesus, he was an advocate of Judaism, big time. He was what we might call a legalist, meaning that he actually added to what the Bible says in the Old Testament is required to be in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says here in verse 19, I died to the law that I might live to God. There's a principle here for all of us. Before we can have the life that God promises us, when the Bible says, as you well know probably, that this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I'm quoting from the New International Version. The literal translation is found in the New American Standard Bible where it says, He who has the Son has the life. The word the is present and Every time it's mentioned in that little section in 1 John chapter 5 about the life, it's talking about life eternal. And by the way, eternal life is not something that you have to wait to have until you die. Eternal life is something that you have the moment that you entrust your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The instant that you give your life to Christ, the result of that is you're signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus Christ, in effect, to life after this life. But also the quality of life that Jesus describes in a little bit different way when He says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And the word translated more abundantly, one word in the original language, means always more than you need. This is the life the Lord has given to us. And we're not talking about material things here. We know we were promised in the Word of God that if we seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, all these other things, meaning the necessities of life, will be ours. And I can attest to this in my own life, after having followed Christ seriously for a half a century, that that's true. I'm not a rich man by a lot of people's standards I am, but I haven't worried about that because I and you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that is in Christ Jesus. What a Lord we have. And what He does when He comes and He saves us, He helps us to die to feeling like I've got to keep every law of God. 
He sets us free that we might live to God. So let's go a little further in considering what does it mean to live to God. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Stop with me just a moment. I'm going to talk about each one of these emphases here. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We know Jesus was crucified. It was a horrific way of punishing a person. Awful. Unimaginable to us. But what we know here is that Paul is using this figure of speech to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Had Paul been nailed to a cross? No. He's not talking about physical crucifixion. He's talking about spiritual crucifixion. The old Paul died on the road to Damascus when Christ intervened in his life. He was a new man. Undoubtedly, when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17, he had this event in mind. He says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. Paul is a man in Christ. You cannot read what he writes very much and you'll come to some reference to being in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's His privilege. But for you and me, if we know Jesus, it's ours too. And it's a privilege that's beyond our ability to appreciate fully. We're in Christ. So that now, listen, when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, He knows you're in Christ. But do you know who He sees? He sees Christ in whom you dwell. And in Christ who dwells in us. Christ lives in me, He says. This is phenomenal to think that the God of the universe would be able to, in somehow or another, come and dwell in you or me. Especially when you consider how many people populate the earth. We don't know exactly. The numbers are just incredible how rapidly the population of the world is increasing. Over 8 billion people. And I've said to myself every once in a while, it is incredible that God has the capacity to come and dwell in your life, Mike Woods. Because you know how you are. And you know that at times you ignore what the Lord has to say. But remember, our salvation is based upon the sovereign grace of God. That in no way excuses me when I do deviate from following the Lord. We have been given clear instruction as to what we're to do when we do get off the path and don't trust in the Lord with all our heart in favor of going our own way. Well, the instruction is, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar when you do sin. In other words, don't try to fake God out. It's impossible. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. But what we are to do, what does it say? If you confess your sin... God is faithful and just to forgive you and to 
cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What a God we have who's willing to put up with our stuff along the way. But the good news is, like a good father, He disciplines us when we get off base. The Holy Spirit convicts us, convinces us, and then He gets us back on the pathway. The disciplinary action of the Lord takes different forms. We can't pinpoint one for a particular time and one for the same one for another time. We just know He loves us. It's an expression of His love. Even Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Do you know what He says to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He says this. He says that those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If there's no discipline in my life, there's no love from God's point of view toward me. He loves those who have Him and He wants us to be men and women who have that kind of relationship with Him. But what has to happen, we have to die to ourselves. Hold your place here and turn to chapter 5 of Galatians and look at verse 24. These are the words of Paul again. He uses this image of crucified, again, related to himself. Look what he says in verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, he would be one of those, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Raises a big question, what is flesh? Well, sometimes it's used to describe the stuff that covers our skeletal system and our internal organs. And the Bible is true at that, but the way in which Paul uses it by the Holy Spirit is this. Our flesh is our selfishness. My flesh is my personality when I get outside the realm of submissing to the Lord Jesus Christ, under that circumstance, I don't act a bit like Jesus Christ. And that's where the Holy Spirit with believers comes in and He gets us back on track. He convinces us that we're off base. So flesh simplified, if you look at the word, you've heard me say this before, Lop off the last letter, H, flip it around, and what do you have? The word self. My biggest problem, and yours too, whether you know it or would admit it, is me. I'm not your bigger problem. I'm a problem of some of you, of course. But definitely, each one of us, it's our selfishness. You see this if you have small children or have had children growing up in your family. Did you have to teach your children to be selfish? It came naturally, didn't it? You know where they got it from? You. <laughs> Not just your example. It was your example. But the Bible says we inherit it from our dads. Listen, fathers. Ladies, you're off the hook here. You can blame the child's father. But we do know that we are sinners by nature. And that's why we could never offer the right kind of sacrifice to make ourselves right with God. We're out of luck. But thank God, God does not operate on the level of luck. 
It's not luck. It's His omnipotent power and His will that people like Paul and hopefully you and I, we hear the Gospel and we understand it's by grace. That means a gift. A total gift. By grace we have been saved from our sins. And not that based upon our own good works, but on the work of God in Christ. And we're saved by grace. That's a total gift. I'm repeating myself, but it's worth it. By grace, through faith, and neither of those of themselves. It's from the Lord. And so Paul talks about this. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so, what are we to do with the flesh? The same thing Paul did. The way he describes it, he says, I crucified my flesh. Would you back up with me a little bit? Probably 20 years earlier, Jesus was having a conversation with His apostles. Remember that? And He was questioning them about what does it mean to be a follower of Me? And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him or her deny himself or herself. Deny yourself. That's to say no to Mike Woods. I'm personalizing it. Say no to Mike Woods so that Mike Woods may say yes to God. That's hard, isn't it? We want to put restrictions on how much we say yes to God. You will never have the life of God in you until you come to that place where you say, Lord, I understand that your plan is for me to make you Lord of my life, not just a sometime Savior, but an all-time Lord. That you will lead me and you will guide me in the way I should go. And I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And He loves that when we come to Him in that way. Jesus says, what? If anyone wishes to come after me, what does he do or she do first? Deny yourself. Take up your cross how often? Daily. I've heard people say, in fact, I remember in my first pastorate here in El Paso back in the late 70s. That seems ancient, doesn't it? It probably is ancient. But there was a young man in our church. He was a student at UTEP. And he was talking to me and a couple other guys one day, and he said, he called the name of his computer programming class. He said, it's just my cross to bear. He'd failed it twice already, and he had to pass it to graduate. And I, and I thought, that ain't your cross to bear, man. That's just a lack of applying your time to earn, get somebody to help you learn this thing. I don't know if he ever graduated or not. But look, the cross is an instrument of death too. We deny ourselves, say no to me so that I can say yes to the Lord when I'm in contradiction in my thinking or my speaking or my acting. No, Mike. Yes, Lord. Also, the second thing is I take up my cross. That means I'm willing to count the cost to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a cost involved. 
but it's a blessed cost. Not because we want to be martyrs or anything like that. It's just because we have the privilege. Think about it. You and I have the privilege of being called by Christ to follow Him. And in following Him, we enjoy what He describes as the life that I mentioned earlier, an abundant life. And that's not about material things. I don't want to leave the wrong impression there. But it's about spiritual things. And also a lot of blessings that are from this world in which we live as well in terms of the fruit that's produced by God. So, we're to do what? In order to die to ourselves, to crucify the flesh, we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses regularly, and follow the Lord. And we're to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we keep our eyes on the Lord And what I know, and I know you know this too, is when we played childhood games like follow the leader, or Simon says, if you didn't watch what the leader was doing or Simon said to do, you were out of the game, right? And so when we follow the Lord, we keep our eyes on Him. And He will lead us in straight paths, the Bible says. And He will empower us. This is the big thing. Please don't miss this. I don't want to leave the wrong impression. It's not about you and me. It's not about our power or lack thereof. It's about our committing our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting Him live His life through us. Which leads to the second thing here we see. Christ lives in me. And a a more literal translation of that simple sentence, I'm just going to add one word and change one of the words a little bit. But Christ is living in me. This is astonishing. How could the God of the universe live in us? Why would He want to to begin with? Well, the answer as to why we're going to read in just a moment. But He lives in us. So we identify with Christ in His death. We crucify ourselves in the sense, not being masochists or anything like this, but we die to ourselves in order that we may live to God and bring glory to God. No longer having to depend on our goodness to get us into heaven because the Bible says if you commit one sin, this is, just blows you away when you see it. In the book of James chapter 2, if I had only committed one sin in my whole life, I would be a sinner just as surely as I had committed a thousand or ten thousand or ten million sins. So I'm disqualified. How did I get qualified? Through the work of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross for us. He took our punishment upon Himself. And in so doing... He exchanged His life for our death, spiritual death, because we were separated from God by our sin. But what does He do? He gives us Himself, His life, everlasting life. This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. 
that you may know. Allow me a moment of interpretation. There in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that you may know. And the word is that you may keep on knowing. This is one of the appealing things about being a follower of Jesus to me. I will always have more to learn. And He was, will always teach me as I follow Him if I have ears to hear. Don't you love to hear from the Lord? If you haven't, and I'm not talking about audibly with our ears. I'm talking about internally in your heart. And it's, it's real. It's as real if not more real than other kinds of things we hear. But the good news is what the Lord does is He lives in us. And He wants to live His life through us. We're getting close to the heart of the matter. Let's look again in the middle of verse 20 of Galatians 2. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this case he's not using flesh negatively, he's talking about the body. And some of your translations actually translate that word in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Okay. This is critical. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says this, without faith it's impossible to please God. I hope you understand that you will never be able to please God until you trust in Him. And faith is forsaking all others. I trust Him. That's what faith is. Where we focus on the Lord and we ask the Lord to guide us and direct us. And we find the great pleasure of God in our own heart when we do as He leads us to do. And it goes on to say, the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. How did Jesus love us? Well, in John chapter 13, the first verse or two, we hear these words. That Jesus having loved His men, He's talking in that case about the apostles, the twelve. He had loved them. Jesus loved them until the end. And the question would be, the end of what? And the obvious answer is, until the end of His life. What happened between the moment that Christ became a slave to them, because there was no slave there to wash their feet to prepare them for the Passover meal, Jesus took His garments off, put the robe around Him that was the robe or the clothing for a slave servant, and then what did He do? He washed their feet. And they watched in silence. They were stunned that the Lord would do that. And after the establishment of the Lord's Supper, and Jesus sent Judas out, and the Bible says when He left, it was dark, symbolic of the evil in that man. He was a son of perdition, and the spirit of the devil had come and dwelled him, taken full control of him. But then, for Jesus, he was going to be betrayed by Judas, of course, but he's going to be abandoned by everybody else. Don't you think that was difficult for Jesus? I mean, he's human. He's fully God, but he's still human, and he's abandoned, left alone. Well, he really wasn't alone, was he? The Father was with him. 
But he suffered immensely. And part of the suffering was that these men whom he loved unconditionally all skedaddled when things got bad for them. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ is the one who loved them to the end. And you know what is true of you? If you know Jesus Christ, you've trusted Him with holding any, nothing back. You've trusted Him. Then He's loving you to the end of your life in this world. But He'll love you forever too. That's what the Bible says. He's loved us with what kind of love? An everlasting love. What a God we have. What a Savior we have. And He delivered Himself up for me. What's that saying? Jesus offered Himself up for us. He could have walked out of the council of Sanhedrin. He could have walked out of the praetorium where He was being cross-examined by Pilate, the person who represented Julius Caesar, or one Jesus, Augustus Caesar at that time. He could have walked right out had he wanted to. He didn't. Why didn't he? He did not do it because he loved you and me. He delivered himself up. He was delivering himself up to Father God for a sacrifice acceptable. Remembering what I mentioned earlier, the Passover lamb was going to be sacrificed. About the time Christ was being sacrificed on the cross, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He delivered Himself up for Paul. You know who else He delivered Himself up for? Put your name in there. He delivered Himself up for you. Are you one who have embraced Christ without reservation? That's what God wants for us. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. That's what I've been trying to say here in the last 30 minutes or so. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. In Psalm 46.10, many if not most of you could quote it. And it goes like this. It says... Let go and let God. Be still and know that I am God. Literally what it means is drop your hands and know that I am God. The idea is clear. There's no way we will know God until we take our hands off of the controls of our lives and quit playing at being a Christian or following Christ and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. We talked about at the outset about having said, I'm really serious this time, Lord. This time I'll do it if it kills me. And the Lord doesn't smile at that. It's, it's no smiling matter. The Christian life, now listen carefully, the Christian life is not merely hard it's impossible except for our understanding this passage of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. Amazing. Love, how can it be? Having loved me to the end. This is the Lord we have. We read from Philippians 1, another statement similar to this one where Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. He was not perfect. He had his moments where he was wrestling with God's will for his life, one of the more noble, notable of which is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he was suffering from some kind of physical ailment that probably was disfiguring and limited him in some ways. It made him unappealing to look at, and he was probably thinking, Lord, if I can just get my face fixed, then more people will hear me and more people will come to Christ. His eyes were aflame with some sort of uncurable, incurable illness probably. And what did Jesus say to him? He asked three times, what did Jesus say each time? He said, no, no, no. And then finally he said, my grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now this is not for the faint of heart what I'm talking about now. It's for all of us who have a heart to follow the Lord. But the Lord does not promise that we'll never have trouble after we come to Christ. In fact, He says in this world you will have tribulation. Thanks a lot, Jesus. But He says, don't worry. I will be with you. Everybody has trouble. Believers have trouble because of our identification with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. But we know that those things that are difficult for us, that God allows, and in some case actually orders in our lives, those things are that which help us to grow spiritually. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that trials are the stuff of which maturity comes. No trouble, no maturity. God has in His heart a desire to finish what He started in you and me. I thank God for that. I would have given up on me a long time ago if I were God. But He keeps on working. And His work is good. And His work is purposeful. And you know what the purpose of His work is? It's to bring honor to Him. Aldous Huxley, a name some of you who are familiar with British philosophy, he was not necessarily a strong believer, but he had at least one thing to say. He put it in print, actually. It's worth our thinking about. He said, My kingdom go is the necessary corollary to your kingdom come. I've got to get off the throne of my life if I hope Christ's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the, that's the way we have to live. Look, this is freeing. I can testify in my own life. 
when I finally got this, I had been active in church for, let me think how many years, I had been active in church for at least 14 years. And I was in church every week almost. I gave offering every week. I read the Bible rather frequently. But I couldn't remember anything I read much. Why? Because I was punching a card that would ensure that I was going to go to heaven based upon how good I was. I repeat that we don't get to heaven based on our goodness. We get to heaven based upon the goodness of Jesus Christ and that alone. And therefore, we need to understand that. And that frees us to be like Paul, who said we're to imitate him. I've probably mentioned that already. We're to imitate Paul because he imitates Christ. And what did Christ do? He lived his entire life depending on God the Father. I'm talking about his human life on earth. And the Bible says this. In the book of John especially, we often overhear Jesus say this. He says, I don't do one thing without first having seen God the Father do it. I don't say one word unless I've heard God the Father speak it. What's that amounts mounting to? What does that amount to? I am dependent upon God the Father. In His humanity, He remained God. Internally, He was God. But in His humanity, in His, His identifying with us and dying and then being raised from the dead so that we can do the same, we can say, I'm done with running my own life. I'm giving you control, Lord. Please help me. I don't know that I can't do it. I don't think I can. And the Lord says, you can't, but I can. I can do it through you. When we know Jesus, we begin to look at people and situations in a different way. We even see ourselves differently than we did before. In the book, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, some would say the protagonist is Atticus Finch. He was an attorney. You remember he was defending an African-American man who had been falsely accused of a crime. And this is what he said, worth repeating. He said, you'll never understand a man until you see the world through his eyes. Have a focus when we focus on Christ that is one that is accurate and will be the way that He would want us to go. A couple of quick words and we'll be done. Jesus says in John 7, If any man is thirsty, let him come after Me, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I'm going to close with a section of a book, a paragraph from a book by a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. Mr. Muggeridge was perhaps the leading journalist in his day in Great Britain in the mid to last century of the 20th century. And he came to know Jesus. He was in his 50s when he gave his life to Christ. 
He trusted Christ. He gave His life to Christ. He found Himself empty and aimless. He was given all kinds of awards for His editorial work and His journalistic work. Listen to what He said in this book. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one drink of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Amen. Jesus, bow your head as we pray. Jesus, thank You that You tell us if we are thirsty. And we're thirsty, Lord. We can come to You and drink of what You have. It's living water. It's that which quenches our thirst that we try to get satisfied with money, other forms of success, relationships. Lord, You're the one who offers this kind of freedom to us. Oh God, thank You. And I encourage you while you're thinking about what we've considered today before we finish, I encourage you to say to Jesus, Lord, I need a fresh start. Some of you have never turned your life over to Christ to begin with. This could be the day of your salvation. Why would you put it off considering what He offers? Full life now and forever. He wants that for you individually. Remember, His will for us is personal. It's one-to-one. And He wants to come into your heart. But you have to say, Lord, I surrender to You. Can you say that in your heart and mean it? I give my life to You, Lord. Forgive me for my sin. I want to be the man or woman You created me to be to begin with. Please come in. This is what Jesus says. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he or she with me. Thank you, Lord. Amen.